Number 172. To those who grieve over... This is some really sweet ones we're coming to. To those who grieve over the death of a loved one, the following words of the Master's should offer deep consolation. Departed relatives and friends sometimes come to one in dreams. Be open to that possibility, especially if you deeply miss your loved ones. For such dreams can be true experiences. When Woody's mother died of breast cancer, I became very withdrawn for a time. Don't be moody, someone said to me. This is no mood, I exclaimed. How can genuine sorrow over the loss of a friend be called a mood? I prayed deeply. Then at last I saw her in the astral world. An angel was leading her away from me. I saw her pause briefly and smile at the beauty of the flowers in a meadow. I called to her and she turned. At first she didn't recognize me. But then I touched her on the forehead and she cried, I remember! She parted the gown she was wearing and said, See, no more cancer. She was free and wonderfully happy. That is such an amazing vignette. There's so many parts of that. Just every time I read it, first of all, and these are things. These are, are things that you hear me talk about a lot. And I mean, I always talk about it in terms of Swamiji. How is it possible to be so free and still be so naturally involved in the world? And so here you have Master. This is Woody's mother. Woody was one of his close disciples. Obviously, her mother was a disciple too. Um, Woody was the one. She had, she her claim to fame is that. She left the monastery to get married, and Master said if she had just held on for 24 hours, she would never have had to deal with that desire ever again. But she left, and so she had to run the whole story. I mean, but anyway, Woody's mother was obviously dear to Master also. So he was withdrawn for a time, is how it's explained. And then somebody quotes the teachings to him, which is just so remarkable. You know, don't be moody. I saw Swami, um, I saw people quote the teachings to Swami at different times, sometimes writing long letters explaining the Dharma of a certain position to him. (laughs) I remember when one man just wrote this long letter about the Dharma of something. I said, how did you ever learn about the Dharma of things? Well, Swami taught me. So maybe, you know, if he's acting differently than you think he should, Maybe it's, he doesn't need to be re-instructed. Maybe you just need to think about it. But it's just amazing. So somebody's there instructing Master. Don't be moody. And then Master's response was so emphatic. How can genuinely missing someone that you really care about be called a mood? And it's just all of a sudden, it's, it's like he, he... The way I've been trying to think about this lately, and I am like such a novice but I'm, I'm just trying to get it um, I'll use Swami as an example of course because I knew him better he didn't analyze things and I used to write him very long analytical letters explaining all the details of why I did this and why I did that and how this related to that and, and the, other, the webinar the other night um, I actually told this story and for the first time I completely understood 
how completely out of my mind I was in this moment. This was July of 1971, and I arrived at Ananda in June of 71, and that is my only excuse. Maybe it was August. (laughs) But I actually, I could tell that I was there I was living at Ananda, and I'd been studying these teachings for, so I was 24, so I'd I'd been studying since I was 18. I mean, I was really into it, and I'd known Swami a few years, and I just, it just, it, you know, I, I wasn't making it as quickly as I thought I should. I had decided, Master's phrase, portable paradise, I thought I would have one in five years. And I guess five years had passed and I didn't have it. So it was super intent. So I went to Swamiji and I, I sat down in front of him and I actually said, made me laugh so hard on Friday I couldn't go on so let me see if I can do it this time I actually said Swami I think I need to improve my power of analysis somehow I looked at the whole situation and decided that that was my weakness is that I just didn't know how to analyze things he he looked at me like you know maybe I made a mistake in letting you live here it's just like and my feeling was that he rose out of his chair and shouted at me and I've heard people say, you know, that Swami shouted or something like that. I've never seen Swami shout, ever. But my memory of that is that he rose from his chair and spoke very loudly to me. I don't really actually think that happened. But I think he just cast his aura over me with so much force that I interpreted it as physical. And he said, no, <laughs> like that. And then more calmly, he said, <clears throat> What you need is more devotion. <laughs> Just like that. But amazing. But I used to, now they think where I was. Oh, I was saying, I used to just think about everything and I try to figure everything out. And I, I remember writing these long letters in which I, I explained this point and that point. And he never actually related to everything I said as I expected him to. Um, but Swamiji just allowed energy to flow through him. And he had so, uh, he was so clear in his surrender to God that he didn't do all this double thinking all the time. And I remember in a certain context, it was when he met Rosanna actually, um, in Italy, and he said, because it took them a couple of years to figure out where their relationship was going. And in fact, he wrote, when, when he and Rosanna decided to get married, they'd gone to see this Italian woman saint named Natuzza. This is a whole story that he tells is beautiful. And Natuzza looked at them and said, you know, I see you married. The angel tells me you may marry. That's what Natuzza actually said. And Swami said they were both startled by that. He said it wasn't that the thought hadn't crossed their minds. He said, but because of their mutual dedication, They thought because the thought had crossed their minds, that meant that they would separate rather than that they would marry. And Natutza said, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying that the angel says you can marry, (laughs) like that. But at the beginning of their relationship, Swami commented that Rosanna was uh, more confused, is how he put it. And Swami's explanation was so simple. He said, I am accustomed to following my heart. So he didn't. You know, she was thinking the age difference, the position she had. She was Italian. He was, you know, he, she had all these stories running. And he didn't have any stories running. He just felt this great, open-hearted um, respect 
and love for her, that was all he needed to know. It just, the energy was just moving. And it, it was so natural with him. But, but it wasn't, but then when things would not work out, but when things would not work out, he grieved also just as naturally. There was, there was also no necessity to now um, suppress or change or decide. It was, just, it was just all, these are the energies. I'm reminded in this of uh, when I talked about Michael Singer, who's that man in Florida. He wrote a couple of books that were best-selling books now. And uh, when Amrit Desai, uh, when the ashram that Amrit Desai founded in wherever it is in the East Coast, uh, Kripalu, when it, it blew up and they threw him out and he just sort of didn't know where to go, Michael Singer took him in in Florida and then was with him while Amritji decided what he was going to do next, which was essentially just to begin over. But Michael said about Amrit, he said, it wasn't so much that Amritji had a hard time, but a hard time went through him. And I always thought, what an interesting difference. And when I heard him articulate that, I thought, that's what I saw with Swamiji. I would see great, you know, loving energy go through him, and then great disappointment would go through him, and, you know, great uh, struggle would go through him, but it sort of went through him. He never held it in the way that I have had a tendency to, to believe it's happening to me, and then to try to work it like that. You know, I have, I have all these vrittis, and so they're always spinning and snarling up on themselves. And Swami just had the, um, the true vibrations, whatever they were. Did you have a question? So, um, since Master specifically says, you know, this isn't a mood here, it sort of raises the question, what is a mood? Because we still don't want to be moody. And so it seems like you could say that a mood is an emotion or feeling that's not appropriately related to what's actually going on, maybe. Or but, something that you are holding on to longer than you need to instead of letting it flow through. Well, if I, whenever I've talked about emotions versus... I, what, I think the distinction you're reaching for is the difference between emotion and feeling, which is partly just an arbitrary definition that we make in English because if they don't have English words, it'll make the distinction. So feeling is our fundamental nature. It's, it's, we're, we're feeling creatures and our, and our purest feeling is bliss when, when, um, when everything else goes away there is a feeling left it's not like it goes into nothing this is Swami's objection to some of the Buddhist ways of describing nirvana is that it becomes nothing whereas Master says when everything is taken away there's a pure feeling and that feeling is bliss so I believe that there's feelings that run through the center of us and that are just a fundamental flow of energy. I, I, I think that, I think, and I have to just speculate, genuinely missing a dear friend with whom you have a spiritual connection, I think Master would call that a pure feeling. And a mood is something where you move, when I, we're thinking of emotion versus feeling, when you move away from the center of your connection with the divine and define your reality, by something smaller. Um, I, when I draw a picture of it, I would draw a tree with branches. And as long as you can extend yourself out to the farthest branch, 
as long as you're fundamental as you're as, as long as you're still in the trunk and when you when you become moody or emotional you've essentially abandoned the trunk and have taken up residence in one of the branches or in one of the leaves and the difference being also that if that leaf that branch is sawed off or if that leaf is ripped from the tree you just you hit the ground whereas even if you've extended yourself all the way out if it's removed you're still you're changed but you're fundamentally intact and so I think when you know that don't be moody because he wasn't being he used the word withdrawn he was more inward then and that was interpreted by whoever said that as being uh, off center in some way but the fact that master just so defends of course you would be sad when someone you love dies and just puts it out there like such a natural thing and, and even here if you really miss someone he's telling us he's not saying get over it he's actually saying well that person you love will come to you it's so compassionate and it's so natural um, there's nothing he's not doing anything to try to persuade us that uh, we need to be unfeeling it's partly our path I mean this is master's way this was Swami's way they lived very naturally in this world there are other paths where people live more deliberately austerely and uh, when people ask how do you know what path is yours well you know do you want to be like that when I would see those really austere people I didn't want to be like that I didn't have any faith that I could be and nor did I particularly want to be I, I, I enjoyed the uh, naturalness and spontaneity I mean on a level that I had no idea when I started and I had no idea how um, how, it ha- how much it has to come from inside of you that's, I mean that's the mistake that I think all of us make when we're younger on the path I mean I kept trying to behave properly and I mean, I, I, I have been trying to behave properly all my life, and that's not a bad discipline. This morning we were talking about, uh, so, some of you were there, but most of you weren't, about the, the fact that Swamiji would, uh, Ramani was telling a story about how Swamiji uh, had to say the same thing to her about eight or nine times before she heard it. Um, she was unwell, and he kept affirming her wellness, and she just didn't, really realize what he was giving her he was making her well and it took her a while to really understand that and I know in my life uh, there was a certain there have been a certain series of things that Swami would want me to do and every few years he would just bring it up and he would bring it up as if it had just occurred to him (laughs) and he would present it to me as maybe I could do this you know I knew perfectly well because I have a very good memory and so did he but we would act it out as if this was like a new idea maybe I will oh that's a very wonderful idea and uh, someone else in the room commented about how patient Swami was and there was a nuance to that that occurred to me that's part of related to this which is um, I can behave in a patient manner, manner at times because I breathe and I remember my own history and I recognize that it takes time and nothing will be done by being upset with people you just kind of flow and so I behave patiently but it's an act of will in which I take what I would call the the 
oscillations of my own heart and, and by a deliberate decision I can hold them still and then when I can hold it still I can perceive a higher reality and genuinely, not insincerely, but it's a process. But Swami had no oscillations. He didn't need anything to be different than it was. So it was not a technique for him every few years to make the same suggestion to me. It would just be he would have suggested it to me and then he would perceive a few years later that, well, you could really benefit from this. And he, he wouldn't be calculating, it's been four years since I asked her, so I put it on my, you know, my tickler file and now it's four years and I'm going to bring it up again. It would just be his genuine and actual perception, oh, this might help you, like this. And I mean, seriously, I, I bet if you asked him, he wouldn't really know that he'd asked before because he wasn't being patient. He was just looking at the energy and trying to guide it. And it's um, someone this morning talked about that. There's the difference between genuinely transforming your consciousness and, then, and not, not exactly just trying to look good, but trying to get into heaven by following the rules, which is very different than transforming your consciousness. When your consciousness is transformed, everything looks differently to you, so you just respond differently. You see it differently. You don't think it differently. This was my analysis versus devotion. I could analyze it and behave a certain way, but when you have devotion, you just love people. And that's that. You just love them. I, uh, well, it's too complicated. I won't go there right this moment. If it comes back, I'll do it, but it'll take me too far afield. Okay, so we have Master genuinely loving this woman and then he sees an angel leading her away. She stops to admire the flowers. Wow, well, we have so much fun stuff to look forward to. You know, she's just, you know, there with the flowers. When, when Tushti died, even to this day, I just keep thinking, where is she? What did she see? What happened when she stopped breathing? I thought of this story. Did an angel lead her across a beautiful field of flowers? Don't you just so want to know he tells you and you have it in front of you but um, I wish we could remember I mean, we, we almost remember it's so frustrating in this uh, uh, book about death that I read this man who was on his deathbed he had cancer or something that was taking him stage by stage and he was, had been afraid this was a true vignette told by someone he had been afraid and then he had some experience in which he saw, really, what death was and wasn't. And then from that point he was just completely relaxed. And when he tried to explain it, he said, it's as if everything that we think is self-contained is actually just sort of like a set on a great big soundstage. And it just, the edge of it is not the edge at all. And he says, and I saw it like that, he said, and now... I know it's still there, but he said it's like just behind what I can see. I can tell it's there, but every time I turn, it slips away from me. But he could feel it right behind the headboard of his bed, is how he put it. And it was just, he was so confident in its presence that his whole relationship to what he was doing had completely changed. There was a moment when uh, Tushti and I were sitting together. We didn't have many moments like this, but we were sitting uh, at her hospital bed. I think she wasn't in her hospital bed yet. Maybe we were just on the couch. We're looking out over this window that looked out over the Laurelwood Valley there. And it, it was one of those Portland stormy days and that was changing it. We were just looking out and she started talking about the yellow 
and the pink and the purple and you know I pretended I could see it but I couldn't but she could see it she was just talking about how beautiful the sky was and the sky was beautiful but um, I didn't see any of those shades she just started telling me about them and I was just confirming it honestly but I didn't want to say oh how come I can't but what was she seeing where was she going is the angel taking her that was a couple of weeks before she passed but it began to shift and then Master found her now that's the other part here I don't know I presume Master found Tushti too but but Master found this woman he went looking for her and, and that's the other side of the promise isn't it that he found her and he called her name and she didn't remember so he touched her and then it all came back to her like that this little bit of forgetfulness then it all came back now that's quite a promise isn't it and that's what he said if you're faithful to the end I or one of the other masters will come he doesn't tell us how long this time was you know how long she was had passed before he found her how long he was moody before he had this experience he doesn't really give us any of those times so you really don't know there are stories that I've heard of uh, if you've been sick a long time and your consciousness is you, you think your body is sick uh, you have to go to the astral hospital for a while I had a dream about my mother I had two dreams about my mother after she died she'd been sick with Parkinson's for 15 years and she was um, <clears throat> she had put out so much willpower in relation to that disease she was pretty deeply identified with it in the first dream she was in the astral hospital I believe all these dreams were true my mother didn't uh, trust a lot of people and so we're, she, she, in the dream she's sitting on the edge of the bed and she's still quite unwell I, this was very, relatively soon after she died but you know, not immediately and she calls me over and she sits me down right next to her and she looks around to make sure that you know it's private conversation and then she starts telling me that she needs certain things done and she wants me to do them which was just like so much like real life and uh, like this life and I said because I somehow knew she was in the hospital and I knew there were all these angels to help her mother you know I think there's other people here who could help you I'm not so sure she said like that <laughs> and I said mom I really think so and then in the dream I just kind of floated up away from her I said I'm just going to leave you with them I think they'll take care of you but what was interesting was how that she was still um, sick and she was in a hospital because I'm sure just dying she probably didn't know she, even though she was dead what to speak of knowing that she wasn't well second dream I mean some, some of you have heard this but it's fascinating second dream she comes my father lived two more years I'm with my father she comes to visit my father and now she's not old she's young and she was so happy to see my dad they really loved each other and they missed each other and they went into their room and shut the door which was their habit you know my parents kept their bedroom door shut so they went into the bedroom and then I hear her calling me after a few minutes in a, with great nervousness and I open the door and she's aging you know she's becoming old and sick again just like that and I, I grabbed her in the dream and I pulled her out of the room and I pushed her away and I said that was when it banged last time too that's it something to do with the left arm okay so I pushed her away <laughs> And uh, I said, Mom, it's much too soon. Go back, go back. It's too soon for you to be here. 
and then she went away like that. I mean, that, this, so when I read this about this woman forgetting, oh, look, there's no more cancer, you, you can sort of see that just merely getting out of your body, if you've been focused, it's not going to shift you that much. The last dream of my mother, she's standing looking out a window, she's young again. And uh, she was just very young and very free. And we both stood at the window and just looked out the window for a few minutes. I never dreamt about her again. But I, I believe I was being given a picture of all of this. And my mother wasn't a disciple, of course, or a devotee. She had me. And I think that <clears throat> they must have helped her through me. And because of me, because it's good karma to give birth to a devotee, I know that there's a benefit that way. You know, they nurture you. They raise you, they support you, and then if you go and uh, move closer to God, then that gratitude also runs back to them. That's why following the spiritual path is the best thing you can do for all your relatives, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so, and then also just her showing there's no more cancer. I mean, she must have been conscious of that shift somewhere in there. Because imagine how weird it is to have your body just be so unresponsive or ugly, or break down. It was, it was just... So I went at the last... The, toward the end of Tushy, one of the transition points was when her left leg stopped working. And I just... I vividly recall she was sitting in a wheelchair trying to get out of the wheelchair and she couldn't because her left leg wouldn't work. She just looks at me, why isn't it responding? It was just so confusing. Even though she knew that she was dying of cancer, but it was still, it was like, this is what my body's always been. So you get in these very complicated relationships, I think, and it does take a little more um, to make it come free. I read that in uh, a man called Peter. Uh, Peter was a... Who, I don't remember his last name now, but he was a, a well-known preacher. Peter Marshall, right. And he died suddenly of a heart attack. And uh, he was a youngish man, and he just died suddenly of a heart attack. And his wife dreamt of him and he was uh, working in a rose garden. And the rose garden was associated with some kind of a sanitarium in the astral world. She didn't have all those words. But she knew he was there because he was still a little confused. He just didn't really quite know what had happened to him. So he was recovering just by working in the rose garden until he found his footing again because he was a young man in the, you know, in the height of his energy like that. But think what a grace it is to have a guru come in you like that and remind you and tell you. When Kamala Silva was completely out of her mind with dementia and didn't know anything, she still knew absolutely that she was a disciple of Master and she knew who Master was. She never forgot. She lost everything else, but it, she didn't really care because she somehow knew she had what she needed. The rest of it was just superfluous anyway. <laughs> I think in that sense, I, I said to Bhagavati once, but watching Bhagavati play the flute and how de dedicated she is to music, I said, music is when you come alive, isn't it? I said, everything else is just passing the time in between. And she just smiled. She said, that's exactly what it is. You know, I have to eat and I have to do other things and I have to sleep, but really, I'm just treading water until I can make music again. So I was thinking about Kamala and her recollection of Master that everything else in between, meaning who am I, where am I, is this edible or not edible, you know, how do I dress, it's all just passing, filling in the time between the actual reality, which is being conscious or in tune with the Master. What difference does it make if I lose it all? 
I've got the only thing that's there. So, marvelous. Any questions or thoughts? Or These are wonderfully reassuring sections. Okay, number 173. Isn't it amazing? I mean, Swamiji put this book together. This like, this like a, less than a page of type. But look how much is contained in that. If we, if we actually just take everything that was just in that tiny little story, there's just uh, endless uh, life-changing ideas. All right, number 173. Rogers, before coming to Mount Washington, had been a professional house painter. The master once said to him, I see you in the astral world creating flowers by thought alone. Rogers' love of visual beauty, the master was saying, would be fulfilled on that plane. Indeed, though worldly desires can only be satisfied on the physical plane, pure desires can be fulfilled better in the astral world. That's a relief, isn't it? (laughs) Many great works of art, poetry, and music, the master said, are inspired by astral memories. The desire to do noble, beautiful things here on earth is also often a carryover of astral experiences between a person's earth lives. Swamiji said we were, we were a community in the astral world and we came down here to do it again. Um, because in the astral world, the harmony was so um, effortless and so satisfying. Which is, you know, Ananda is just an unusually... All, all Anandas are unusually harmonious places. And he says it's because we, we know how to do it. We, we've, ha- we've had that energy. People in other communities, so many times when I used to travel and talk to people about this, which I haven't done in years, but they would always ask you, what are your decision-making processes? What are your conflict resolution processes? And they would just, and, and some of these communities had just stunningly complex systems and they would just think I was being not forthcoming when I would say, we don't really have any systems like that. We've just never needed them. Well, what do you mean you never need them? I mean, I've, I've come up with explanations um, because we meditate, we look first to ourselves before we blame other people. We try to resolve disharmony inside rather than projecting it outward. But it's really, honestly, I think it is more than that. I think it's just a, a memory of how to get along that we've just lived through many times. If you think how many times Master has had a world-changing mission and how many times we know that Swamiji was part of it, we, we, we just must have done this before because it's so obvious in so many ways how to do it. We struggle a little bit um, because the material plane is kind of a drag. But... Uh, we don't, uh, we're not confused. You know, we're not profoundly confused. We're not just randomly and wildly trying this system or that system. We just kind of know. I remember all those zillions of years ago when I still lived at Ananda Village and I was on the village council. I don't know why I was ever on the village council, but I was. And I just, I can't remember what the issue was, but I remember that we just disagreed. The, The group disagreed. And we, we couldn't, we couldn't, and we just all knew if we disagreed, well, then it just wasn't time to make a decision. And even though it appeared that we needed to make a decision, we just absolutely couldn't make a decision because we just weren't seeing it. And it wasn't a question of consensus. It was just that it wasn't obvious what we should do. So if it wasn't obvious what we should do, we 
We shouldn't just do something. We should wait until it began to resolve itself. It's very hard if you're not inside of it. When we first moved into our... Um, um, Swamiji has also said in different places, you, you recreate the astral world in which you lived. So you, you, the, vib- the astral world, in certain ways, has a more profound reality. The material world is the expression of it. So those of us who lived in beautiful astral worlds try to make beauty all around us. That's why Swamiji tried to make things beautiful. I remember him, I was a, a, a renunciate in a very um, Himalayan sadhu sort of mold when I first came to Ananda village and it was a matter of pride to me to not have pride in my appearance. And I remember being with him in Carmel and I was wearing one of my favorite outfits which was um, a, a, a brown batik skirt that came to, you know, full just like a gathered skirt that came to my ankles. I probably sewed it myself. And this brown sweater, long sleeve brown sweater. He said, did you bring anything else? (laughs) And I think I showed him something else which he also was not fond of. (laughs) And that was when he uh, took me out and bought me the white dress. And he he dragged me out. This was in the early 70s. He dragged me out with uh, all the group that was with us, Jyotish and Davy and not know else who was there. And uh, he took me shopping, and I and he you know he went through racks like this, and he pulled out this white shirtwaist dress that was made out of uh, cotton uh, eyelet fabric, and it was just a long sleeve dress with a, a tailored collar, and it was straight and had a little tie belt and came like you know just to my knee or something like that. And um, he thought this was a good one. He had me go try it on. It was slightly transparent, and I didn't have a slip, so you could sort of see my bra and my panties and I, you know, was like this and he turned to everyone he said, pretend it's her bathing suit like my underwear like, and then he put me in it and I had to wear it <laughs> fortunately someone else arrived with a slip oh thank you God and so I put, at least I had a slip that I wore under so I wore it I wore it for the weekend like this and at the end of the weekend, when we were going back to the village, I asked him if I had to wear it at Ananda Village. <laughs> twice in his life, he's, twice in my life, he was sarcastic. This was the first time. No, he said, we'll put it under glass in the barn and make it part of the farm tour. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> but he said, you know, I have to look at you. Everybody has to look at you. He said, and you're an eyesore. You know, it's, it's like it's selfish of you. You just, you have to think about other people. And so I tried. I never wore the dress again. I never could. And uh, just karma. When uh, I moved from the village to here um, and packed it. it. Swamiji also at one point, he was in, uh, when he went to uh, Findhorn to Scotland, he bought um, a beautiful blue sweater uh, not quite. Yeah, it was really close to Naya Swami Blue. He bought one for me, one for Sabin, one for Kalyani. He said he wanted to see his girls all dressed alike. So we all had these beautiful uh, Scottish wool sweaters like this. When I moved from Ananda Village to here and packed things up, I put the white dress and the blue sweater in one box. I lost one box. I lost that box. How did I lose one box? But I know I lost the blue sweater because of the way I treated the white dress. 
you know, it was just like, it was so clear that I just hadn't received it and therefore both of them went away. But it was all about, how, oh, it was about the astral world. It was about, you know, this is the wrong vibration. You're just walking around without any um, sense of personal dignity was really what he was trying to get me to have. And also, you know, I thought it was a virtue. What do I care? But uh, it's not, he didn't see it as a virtue. He, thought it as, he saw it as tamasic. And so he was pushing me to be better than that. I never really got really good at it, but it was, it was a very interesting. So what I was going to say is, for those of us who are from refined astral worlds, we, we keep recreating those refined astral worlds. We want those colors, we want that energy, we want bright light. And when we moved into our community where we live now in 1989 when it was a very, Lisa was there, it was a very low consciousness place, Chidambar looking around. It was a very low consciousness place. And, I mean, we bought it because it was cheap, because it was run down. And it was also tran- uh, it was transient. We didn't want to buy an apartment complex and then throw out people who considered it their home. So the fact that it was a very transient place, almost no one had lived there more than a year or two, so it really wouldn't be a big deal for us to move in, for them to move out. It was bought by others, as you well know, we don't own it, but it was bought for the purpose of our moving in. But when we went around and looked, most of the apartments were dark. They had, a lot of them had chocolate shag rugs. Often the walls were painted dark, and and then they would draw the curtains, the people who lived there. They were already dark places. They put dark things in them, and then they closed the curtain. One man was re- uh, rebuilding his motorcycle in the living room. Yeah, and it was, but it was like they were from a different astral world. And, and that was the atmosphere in which they felt comfortable. It was not too much light, no color, and just, you know, chocolate this sort of chocolate color everywhere. It was very interesting, though. And, of course, when you saw them, it wasn't like they were evil, but that was the astral world they remembered. So they manifested their vibration, and that was what their vibration was going to look like. It means it's a very good exercise for your own consciousness to look at where you live. Look at what you wear. Look at what's in your closet. You know, what am I... What uh, astral vibration am I in tune with? What am I really trying to do here? As it's uh, yes, Chidambar. Asha said, "I will not move in unless we put skylights in." <laughs> did I really declare that? Well, we did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The first thing we did was put in all the skylights. But it, what was interesting, actually, is we did put in skylights in the townhouses. Um, was once we moved in we were surprised that they really weren't as dark as we thought they were. We were sort of frantic to make them lighter, but once we were living there, they weren't so dark. I mean, we, the, taking up the chocolate shag rugs helped, but uh, still, because our vibration was so much lighter, as soon as we walked in, everything shifted. In fact, the day the escrow closed, the whole place shifted, the feeling of it shifted. And But in people's consciousness, I mean, the, the courtyard was covered with the trash, People would just walk across the courtyard and just drop trash. My favorite, my absolute favorite, the 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 one uh, the one bedroom places. T- t- oh, upstairs is a different apartment than downstairs, and upstairs can have a balcony, and downstairs has the little yard. Somebody would read his newspaper and then throw it away 
over the balcony, which of course meant it landed in somebody else's lawn, but from his garden, but from his point of view, he just threw it away. You think, wow, what what an interesting universe we live in. Like like what but you, it, it, it broadens your thinking because you, you, you take for granted that everyone's on your wavelength. Hardly. Hardly. That one and the man who parked his car outside our bedroom window at 6.30 on Saturday morning, raised the hood and started repairing his car, turned on the radio. And in the, the, all the bedrooms back up right on that driveway, 6.30 in the morning on Saturday, he just wanted to work on his car and he wanted to be bored, so he turned on the radio. Again, I just wake up thinking, like, and, and then when he's not treated respectfully, he's going to just flip out. Why, how does any, how dare they? Uh, are you connecting any of the dots here? No, actually. Just not. Just cause and effect was so obvious. And it's, this is the patience I'm talking about? Of course not. You know, thank goodness he was repairing his car. You know, he was working, he was doing something, he was up early working. But no, he, the cause and effect wasn't obvious to him. And uh, this is what we look like to the masters. I mean, we're all repairing our car at 6.30 in the morning and wondering why people aren't, why people are upset with us. What? 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 <laughs> why am I unhappy? What? It's just like, whew. Okay. Moving right along. 174. Well, this is good too. Sir, a student asked him, is everyone conscious in the astral world? This is what we always want to know, isn't it? Not everyone, he replied. Oh dear. People of worldly consciousness enter a sort of gray mist. Some of them are vaguely conscious, depending on the sensitivity of their perception. But for many of them, it is like a dream. They aren't quite sure what is going on. If your intuition is even slightly developed, however, especially if you've meditated and prayed some in this life, but also if you've served others, even as a soldier who fought heroically in battle, you will find after you leave this world that the other world is far more beautiful than this one and extremely enjoyable. So many parts to that. I love that. I, Swami, I mean, uh, Master saying that, that it, it, w- one of the Im- implied points there is merely having the body cease to function does not automatically elevate your consciousness. It just shifts it in and out of the body. Um, if you have refined perceptions, the body is gross, and so you can feel things more delicately. That's what he was saying about in the one before, about pure desires can be fulfilled more satisfyingly in the astral world. A lot of us, uh, I, I didn't comment about that, but I know those of us who, who really love music and really love beauty, sometimes one does have that. You just want, you want to experience it more deeply than you can just through your senses. In, in just the, the most trivial way that there's this fabulous fabric store down in San Jose and whenever I've done costumes for any for the children or for anything here I get to go to that store that's my reward for doing that and and it's just a, a chaotic crowded place and I just walk up and down those aisles I'll just be there for the longest time and 
in certain of those areas, I just get drunk. And I says, you know, I'll pull it out, you know. I just, and you want, you want so much more than you can get from two yards of sequins. <laughs> but you, what you're feeling is all that potential that you want, to be, you want to be one with it. And that's what they promise us in the astral world, and we, we do remember that. And of course, music sometimes moves us like that, that you just, you can't, you can't get deep enough inside of it um, without a shift in consciousness. So, we imagine the astral world, and I think our memory for us, because we have meditated, and we have been intuitive, and we have prayed, and so that refined world is really much more our home. I mean, this, uh, this world is uh, quite something. Before this class this evening, I went out to dinner with friends who were in town, and I was saying, well, we can go to this restaurant or we can go to that one. I mean, there's like this many that one can go to because the rest of them are so cacophonous that you, you just, you, you might go there alone and read the newspaper, but why would you? But it's just like everything is assaulting you to be able to just, even now, just to go into any public place. I remember I was in Whole Foods buying laundry soap once and I was trying to buy laundry soap, which is a fairly simple thing to do and the laundry soap was on the bottom and I was kneeling down and I was just trying to choose among the laundry soap and I found I was just incapable of discerning which was the right laundry soap and I was becoming more and more so it's just sort of discombobulated and I finally realized I was right under a loudspeaker and it was playing some really fracturing kind of popular song and it was just beating on my head and and just driving my brain out my ears I think and I just couldn't decide what laundry soap to buy because it was just so um, not our vibe I, I, I did my usual futile protestation to the manager I pointed out to him that this was many years ago now it's not true anymore I mean, at that time, I said to him, your prices are so high, look around, everybody buying in here is older than you. <laughs> Nowadays, there's so much money among young people that it's not true anymore. But that was what it was, and why are you driving me out of your store? But it's not our world. And so I think when we came here to serve, we came here to do a job, I mean, for ourselves too, it would be presumptuous to say otherwise, but this is an assignment that we took on and we willingly took it on and we do it enthusiastically but it's not our home and I think there's a great sense of freedom when uh, we move out of here and get into a homogeneous vibration that's really what it is it's the difference between homogeneous and heterogeneous this is heterogeneous we share this planet with people of many, many, many different levels of consciousness but in the astral world the vibrations are unified and that's how they describe it. You're, uh, a higher vibration can move down to help uplift others, but a lower vibration can't break into a higher vibration. They say that they can see it if they, want, if they look up, but they can't move into it. They're just not able to because the vibrations don't match and you're nothing. But just imagine, that, that to me is the most important thing, just imagine being in a whole plane of existence where all the vibrations were harmonious with your own. Just imagine the incredible freedom of that. When I first moved to Ananda Village, in a real sense, it was like going to the astral. I moved from the corner of Geary and 4th Avenue in San Francisco. 
and I moved to the Ananda Meditation Retreat into a tent from riding the Geary Express bus down to Montgomery Street and working down on Montgomery Street. You know, I, I quit work on Friday and I moved on a Tuesday, so I must have quit work on Friday and um, moved to Ananda on a Tuesday. But just a couple of days and just drove up there. But after about six months, I, I was conscious of... Uh, Uh, how much I was always holding holding myself together because the vibrations were not um, my own and just going to the meditation retreat and suddenly being where the vibrations were my own and I could allow them then of course I went to the second stage before I came here which is where I learned to vibrate myself and so haven't even though I, I don't enjoy things that happen I, I rarely feel overcome by them. Although, uh, <laughs> once Swami, I can't remember, that. what was the conversation? I, I said something, and uh, Swami used the phrase, well, you live out in the spiritual boondocks, is how he put it. I said, yes, sir, and I've had to lower my standards. What can I do? <laughs> but he was teasing. Uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and finish this. Pardon me? Question, yes. Please comment. Uh, just an observation that uh, if it weren't for all this uh, dissonance, dissonance and disharmony and uh, uh, pain, uh, we might not progress as fast as we are toward who we really are. That's what they say. When uh, uh, Linda Gerber was in the last months of her life, those of you who remember her, she was a, is, I'm sure, lovely soul, died of cancer maybe a decade ago. She loved, she used to decorate the whole temple. She would, she would do the whole Christmas decoration for the whole temple. And, you know, she, anyway, it was all different. She'd put these huge Christmas trees in. She'd just, she would just do it all by herself. She would make the whole members party. She was marvelous. And, and Swami said to her, you're going to like the astral world a lot. And he sort of said, now don't get stuck there. <laughs> yeah, because he said, it's, you're going to like it so much there. It's going to be so natural to you. But don't get stuck there. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, how are all, all these different things? Because it, you can't, if you just keep recreating what you already know and enjoying it. I think of it like, uh, well, Michael Toms, who uh, at a certain point was a really influ- he ran a really influential radio show in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and I think it's still running, New Dimensions Radio, but the whole world has shifted since then. At one point, he picked up his entire operation, which was really quite dynamic, and moved the whole thing from San Francisco to Hawaii. Big, big thing, moved the whole thing to Hawaii. Less than six months later, he picked up the whole thing and moved it back to San Francisco. And he said, I had to get away from Hawaii before I forgot even why I would want to accomplish anything. (laughs) He said he could just feel it coming over him. Just all ambition, it was just so beautiful. What was the point? So yeah, there is that question about incentive. Okay, let's take a few minutes break. <laughs> you know, um, when my mother passed away, speaking of my mother, who was a, a good woman, and I was in Rome, and she died in America, and uh, that, that just was, I was with Swami, I wasn't with her, and I asked Swamiji if she would still be conscious of me, because I had been very dutiful, and I needed to know whether my duty would extend beyond her passing out of her physical body. 
And he answered me very definitely. He said, at her level of consciousness, um, she will only vaguely remember this world. The details won't be clear to her. And therefore, I didn't have to... Because in fact, you know, a mother-daughter relationship is a biological relationship. The, the, the bond between our souls is not biological, but the bond of I'm her daughter, she's my mother, I have this responsibility because she's my parent, all of that um, specialized expectation and biblically declared responsibility. But it, it ends at death in that form. So I, I was a little confused as to what was appropriate because I, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. They, they seemed no reason to. No, he said, you can just put it aside now. Interesting, isn't it? It was, it was, he, when he was very specific. And then we, I mentioned Paula, and I said something that after Paula died, I, I felt that she was watching me a lot. He said, oh, yes. You know, so it was, just, it was a very personal answer, just as he's describing here. My mother, wasn't, uh, my mother was a refined person, but as far as I could tell, she just didn't have much sense of other realities. Um, when I asked her about if she was afraid of dying the single time we ever discussed it. It, there was, it must have been a presidential year. I don't remember when she died, but I think it was a presidential year. She died in January, though. But you know, maybe it was that time. But I said something about if she was concerned about dying. Not really, she said, but this, I love this. But I hate to think of all this going on and my not being here. <laughs> oh, I wanted to say, don't worry, Mama, you get to come back. <laughs> You'll get to see another presidential cycle if you really want to. <laughs> you know, she was political and interested like that. I thought, wow, everybody's so different, aren't they? It's just, but that, that consciousness would um, make it harder to keep a continuity of consciousness because you would be so defined by the details of the physical world. And when you lost those details, where would your point of reference be? My father, though, she, she clung to my father. After he died, everything changed. Her vibration shifted. Yes. So what do you think Swami's answer would have been if your mother's level of consciousness was considerably more elevated? Well, then he would have answered like Paula. You know, because when I said... Well, if my mother's consciousness had been elevated enough to be able to remember me like Paula would, my relationship with her would have been different. And it would have been... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have asked the question because the, I, I would have wanted to maintain it more. Or I would have just naturally maintained it more. It was partly because um, we didn't have that in common. And therefore, I, I, it was hard for me to embrace her in the same way that I embraced my guru bhais. And, you know, because my parents have passed, I can speak somewhat frankly about this because these are important points. When I talked to Swami about that 35 years or f before she died, and I described to Swami the dilemma I felt in regard to my parents, because there was this sense of, um, I guess the word is distance, uh, and I wanted to know what I should do about that. And he gave me the very peculiar answer which I put into the book, but I don't think I put my name on it, which is where he said, sometimes a devotee 
just gets a body where you can and sometimes you deliberately get a body in a place where you don't have a strong connection because you don't intend to live your life with your biological family. You're just getting a body where you can so you can go off and do what you intended to do and not be in conflict and not be all bound up. just depends on your karmic circumstance. And so I always felt that's what I did. And, you know, I I had the good karma to be well-raised and to have a fortunate birth. But I left home at 18, and I just never looked back. At the end of my parents' life, I I ended up with much more duty for them than I ever anticipated. But I did, and I carried it out. I never anticipated having to go back and be as involved with them, and I learned a lot from doing it. Um, But so, when it was done, it felt more like a responsibility um, than an actual ongoing relationship. So, see, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about how I would have a tendency to analyze everything. And Swamiji had, Swamiji was just very comfortable with just perceiving things as they were and not feeling this complicated necessity to analyze them. See, here I am, that's exactly what I'm doing. Instead of just allowing that relationship to be whatever it actually was, I had to analyze it and think about it and wonder about this and be concerned about that because I I don't have, I didn't have, um, that spontaneous uh, confidence in uh, the flow of life, in my own purity, I guess those would be the words. You know, it's amazing to me how much I... This is a paradox to me. Even though on one hand I feel that way about my parents and I feel gratitude toward my parents because of many reasons. Um, But at the same time I think about them a lot. So I also think that I'm not as detached or as free from them as I thought I was. You know, it's just... It's a funny thing. I end up just nothing ever comes out tidy. I just throw my hands up and just figure, ah, it's just somebody else's problem. And when I'm supposed to understand it, somebody will explain it to me. And until then, practice devotion. <laughs> All right. Shall we go on? Number 175. A couple expressed to me their desire for a spiritual child. I prayed for them, then showed them a photograph. This soul, I told them, would be suitable for them and was also, I felt, ready to be reborn on earth. Now, he never tells you why did he have that photograph? Like, who was this? He just sort of puts this in here. Oh, I just happened to have a picture, you know, right here. (laughs) You need a child? How about that one? Okay, meditate on this soul, I said. Concentrate especially on the eyes. Invite him to come dwell in your home. In addition, have no sexual contact for six months. Abstinence will increase your magnetism. When, at the end of that time, you come together physically, think of that person and think also of God. If you follow my advice in all these respects, that soul will be born to you. They followed what I told them, and some time later, that was the very soul which was drawn into their home. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more that we can do than we know, isn't it? 
So many children are conceived so unconsciously, even accidentally. But uh, the other part, there's so many parts of that. One, the one part is just the whole thing. You want a baby? Here's a good baby for you. I mean, we have this thing in our mind about my little baby, and Master's just seeing parents who want to serve. And being, being parents, I, which is not something I've ever done in this life, it's, it's this act of service. This is what you do for children, is you sacrifice yourself for them. Swami has a... Uh, a, a carved Balinese statue. Let me think if I have this correct. No, this is, I'm, I'm thinking of something different. Um, this was something that Joseph Campbell talked about. Remember all that, that beautiful series he gave many years ago about all the different myths? And there's, there was this some traditional myth about uh, um, different planets that represented the father and the son and how, or different animals, and how the son gradually eats the father. You know, and we think of this as sort of barbaric, that the, the son eats the father, but it was really just a statement of what it is. The father is completely sacrificed for the sake of raising the son, which is what happens to parents. I, speaking of my parents, I remember when I was about 12 or something, and you know how you begin to realize how dull your parents are and how unspontaneous they are and how everything is perceived as like all this work has to be done in order to do it. And I realized that the reason they were so unspontaneous is because they had the three of us to consider in all circumstances. And that I was, I was upset with them for being that way, but I had caused it. And that's it's really what happens. The life is just gone, you know. My father jokingly would, said when the third, my sister was born, and um, my my brother and I were in the car, and he, you know, from the hospital, he brought my mother, and she had the little my sister in her arms, and he put her in the car. And in those days, of course, he would open the door, especially if she was bringing a new baby, and we would open the door and settle her and shut the door, and then coming around. And he talks about when he was coming back around the car, thinking of just going that way, <laughs> you know, just the moment whether he was really going to get back in the car and take all that responsibility. I mean, um, I don't think he actually would have gone, but I'm sure he thought of it because the children eat the father, just like that. So when you see, when he saw, you know, this couple that wanted to do this because it was the service that they wanted to render, and then he he spoke to them in all these different ways, you know, self-control, self-awareness, really trying to consciously conceive a spiritual soul instead of just thinking this is really about you. And so then they were able, they obviously followed him in every respect and then they were able to do it. But also, I mean, just imagine what a a marvelous experience it must have been for them to have their, their unborn child selected by the guru. And, And just, you know, Master just sort of slides this in here without telling us where, when, who, why? You, you have all these other questions you wish Swamiji had asked. And also Swami, just as a young man, um, imagine listening to Master talk like this. And there was no context for any of this. Uh, Swamiji, when he went to Master, he didn't know anything about any of this. Nobody did. It wasn't nowadays so much is talked about, whether rightly or wrongly, at least these ideas just kind of float around. But when Master was saying things like this, like this is the soul that you can conceive and this is how you can conceive him. Uh, Just 
where do you put it? Swamiji talked about when he first went to Master how he was just reeling. He said sometimes he had to literally sit down because he was just so uh, stunned by everything that he was hearing and thinking. Even I, and I've heard of this sort of thing before when I read this. It was just like, we don't even have a fraction of an idea what's going on. We just stumble along and every so often a little tiny ray of light comes through and you get to think about the most interesting things. You know, for people conceiving children, I know Mary Kretzman talks a lot about conscious conception and we put it into the movie. Um, with she's sitting around with her, two of her three children and just talking about, do you believe that you were consciously drawn to this family? And the Peter and uh, David Kretzman were saying, well, there just cer- there certainly seems to be a tie here that is outside of the ordinary. So I can certainly see that it's possible in the astral world. You make a deal. Who knows? Quite fun. I mean, so many people tell you they can feel the soul hovering around them. And there was a time I never. Um, I never conceived and never seriously wanted to get pregnant, but I remember walking from, I was married then, so um, I was walking through the forest from Ayodhya to the community and there was this uh, young, uh, young child, like about two or three years old, just right there, trying to persuade me to be her mother. <laughs> and she's kind of an impish looking thing, not not you know, not conventionally beautiful, but impish, looked like fun. And I said, no. <laughs> and I said, you know, there's a lot of women here who really want to be mothers, and I'm not one of them. No. Like that. But I said, I was very friendly to her. And, you know, shortly after, there were several pregnancies. <laughs> I don't know if she was born to one or the other of them, but I think it was real. She was looking for a mother, and she wanted a mother at Ananda, who was going to be a yogi. And I believe she found one made her way. I, I can't say that I've ever recognized her. But it was an interesting uh, moment. And why, why not? I mean, I've thought about that. Just going down the road, driving around, thinking about uh, pretty soon I'll be in the astral world and I, if I have to have another body, I definitely want to come back to be born into Master's family. And I'm certainly going to be tugging on the sleeve of anybody of uh, childbearing years <laughs> who might be uh, suitable. I'm going to leave a lot of pictures of me with everybody. <laughs> Pause to the walls. I'll put that into my little death request, you know, my astral, my astral ascension ceremony. Pardon me? <laughs> All right. So, number 176. I knew the following case personally, the Master told us. You know, Swamiji sat with Master, and Master said so many interesting things to him. I knew the following case personally, the Master told us. A certain man went to a great Master and requested initiation for himself and his wife. The Master agreed and said to him, Go fetch your wife. Oh, no, the man answered. You have to bring her. She is no longer in this world. Well, what could the master do? He had given his word. Wow. He meditated and summoned the man's wife from the astral world. She appeared before them in her physical form. Be careful, the master warned, 
not to touch her. He then initiated the two of them together, and after the initiation, the wife disappeared. Wow. I just, again, you just like, where do you put stories like this? Put them in a book. <laughs> um, what is also so sweet about this one and the one before, too, and the story about uh, Woody's mother, is, again, this is the, this is the whole theme of uh, our path, which is that we don't repudiate the human side of life, we just elevate it. And, and there, there are times, I think, in the course of our incarnations where we have to repudiate it. And Swamiji himself talked about that Master was so at ease in his realization that he, he had no, there was no necessity for him to protect himself from the world. There, there was just, he was perfectly um, unified with all and he didn't have to maintain any austerity. Of course, he was an avatar, but many great souls who are fully capable of being gurus nonetheless are not entirely liberated and may have to keep a little more of a shield. And it was also the style of Master's path because Swami emulated him. Now, bear in mind, we had earlier sections when, Swami, when Master was talking to the monks and you know, being very strict with them and um, being quite... Um, emphatic and blunt about the restraint that they needed to show in telling Swami not to talk too much about Radha Krishna. So it wasn't like for everyone this was the advice. But here he's also just telling this beautiful story of true love. And why not? We have to kind of keep all these different things clear in our mind that on one hand Master's talking about sexuality and what did he, what was that one he talked about how a woman is so sweet and serviceful in the afternoon and she's like, um, what was the serpent at night sucking the life out of a man? I mean, it was very blunt. I don't think coaxing was the word. I think it was stronger than that. But yes, it was definitely not a happy thought. And he was talking to the monks and he was warning them against women, against the temptation that sexuality presents and how people just play into this. So you have that on one hand. Then on the other hand, you have this, where the man was so determined to receive this initiation that he made the master bring his wife from the other side to initiate her. And, and how can you uh, uh, feel anything but enormous inspiration at that kind of loyalty and that kind of friendship? And also the master honored it. So he, he honored it knowing that there was something absolutely true in it. And why not? You know, merely because it's a, a romantic in the sense of it, it's drawn together uh, by the complementary energies that doesn't necessarily mean that it's downward pulling. Because that's also very fundamental to human nature in that that whole and the, the you know the beloved as we were talking about in an earlier class the beloved is one of the classical bobs and it's real and so why wouldn't we want to see it beautifully and perfectly expressed we rarely see it beautifully and perfectly expressed but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an absolute divine beauty in it the master in that story did make the point of saying don't touch her mm-hmm probably just to make sure you know it stays at 
that Actually, level and not like, oh, wait, bodies again, you know? It's a good question, but there's what I was thinking of. It could also have been, remember when Jesus was first resurrected and he said to Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, I'm not yet ascended. And Master explains that in some way that I don't understand, that he wasn't, there was, it was, it was something unstable or, I, I mean, to me, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I have no uh, comprehension. So it was either that, what you're saying, which is recognize the level on which this is happening and don't go and throw your arms around her, or else it was a genuine warning that there was something in the way she was manifested. I, that I, I, he doesn't explain. I only think of that story of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, which even when I read that, I think, I mean, not even, but when I read that, I think, what? You know, just like, what are we talking about? There's so many things that are... I've shared with you all when I asked Swamiji some very complicated question about Babaji and Jesus and this and that, and he was having breakfast, and I asked him this question, and, you know, I trap him. I feed him food, and then he's trapped. And so he was sitting there eating, and I asked him something about Babaji and Jesus, and he looked at me. <clears throat> he put his utensils down, and he went, he just shrugged his shoulders, said nothing more, and then picked up his utensils again. And then he said, some mysteries won't be solved until we get to the astral world. But it was like, your mind can go only so far. And you, I can hear the words. I've, I've heard the statement about why he told Mary Magdalene not to touch him. But I don't know what it meant. It either meant that or, I brought her back, but I haven't really brought her back. Just exactly like you're saying. Don't think you were just tricking me so that you could have her back with you. You know, don't don't take it back. Exactly like you're saying, don't take it back to that. This is just soul to soul. But what power, soul to soul? This is where Swami writes. And of course, husband and wife. If you're husband and wife, or mother and child, or any of those relationships, um, they're defined by the body that you're in. But the soul power that brings you together just moves in and out of so many different bodies. How many different times? And it's so, if the, if the connection is spiritually based, and this is what I was talking about before, about my own family, if the connection is spiritually based, then it just completely has nothing to do with the biological definition of it or the uh, uh, man and woman marriage definition of it, which again is just defined as long as you're in those bodies. As soon as you're not in those bodies... It, it goes away because you don't have the same identity anymore. That's what it says in, is it the resurrection of Sri Teshwar? When you get to the astral world and you find so many husbands and so many wives and so many sons and daughters, he even describes it, first you're a little confused. <laughs> There's a little line in there. First you're just a little confused. You know, like, who am I supposed to single out here? And then you realize you don't need to. It's, it's just all expansive. The last thing I was going to say about that, in the last chapter, one of the end, not the last, but one of the later chapters of the path, I believe it's the one called His Last Days, about Master Passing, when Swami writes that beautiful essay about spiritual family and so on. And he talks about how there's this repeating energy, souls to souls, and that over many incarnations, these great families form around these masters, and that our spiritual salvation depends not only on spiritualizing our relationship with the objective world, but also with each other. 
our salvation depends on spiritualizing that. So this man's noble love for his wife, that couple's um, nobility in their desire to conceive a child, um, master's relationship to Woody's mother, all of these things, this was where I started, this is what this whole section was telling me. How... uh, how what we have to do is elevate all of this and, and become at ease with the way, the way God wants to play with us rather than um, being anxious about it and turning away from it. Of course, all of this is delicate and I remind you again of the advice he was giving to the monks just a couple of weeks ago <laughs> in our book. But nonetheless, it's, it's really worth uh, contemplating very deeply. So, any comments or questions before we close for tonight? All right. Um, I believe, without having a clear concept of the calendar, we have one more Tuesday. We're not having class Thanksgiving week, and we're not having class in December. So maybe that means we have one more class, one more class this year before we're done. But we are not done, so we'll just resume when January hits. Okay. So we finished, we started at 172 and we finished at 176. And that was class number 45.